Hello. Hello. Hello, and welcome to Grace Online. We're really excited for you to be able to receive an encouraging word from Scripture today. Because we know that God is already here, and He is ready to be with you. And let's get ready to hear today's message. The Gospel of our Lord, according to St. Matthew, the 28th chapter. After the Sabbath, at the dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus, who is crucified. He is not here, he has risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell the disciples, he has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. While the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. When the chief priests had met with the elders and devised a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, you are to say, his disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. If this report gets to the governor, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed. And this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. This is the Gospel of the Lord. Every sunrise, as it first pierces what was once the dead of night, and then gradually overtakes the pitch black sky with the brightness of its rays. Every sunrise assures us that darkness is not meant to be permanent, that the light of the sun has not left us forever. So it was on the third day after Jesus' death, as the sun rising on the horizon illuminated the Son of God who had risen from the tomb. Like the light of this universe's brightest star, the light of the world, the light of the life of all humankind refused to remain eclipsed by the shadow of death. And so Christ rose 
to conquer the grave. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. It is the dawn of a new day of hope for all creation, for the light that is the sun, the light of Jesus, has not left us forever. And on that first Sunday morning, the Sunday we call Easter, some women had come to complete the hasty burial begun on the eve of the Sabbath. The ground shook as they made their way there to the place where Jesus had been put to rest, but it was their hearts that quaked as they came to the gravesite and found the stone rolled away, the guardians of the tomb long gone, and the stunning emptiness within. In the glorious symmetry of the gospel, the good news about Jesus Christ both begins and not ends, but begins again with an angel delivering astounding news to a woman named Mary. Do not be afraid. He is not here. He has risen, just as he said. The first witnesses and bearers of the announcement of the gospel are not those who first followed Jesus. They are two women who prove themselves to be more steadfast than the 12 men originally called by Christ. On their way to share the good news with the disciples that Jesus has risen, Jesus himself meets them and repeats the instructions of the angel for his followers to meet him in Galilee. Then, as the disciples follow Jesus' command and meet him on a mountaintop in Galilee, one of the most incredible lines in all of the Gospels is dropped on us. Here at the end, at the end of the journey that also marks the horizon of a new beginning, Matthew shares words that none of us expected to hear. And no, I'm not talking about what's called the Great Commission. I'm pointing to a single sentence, just 11 simple but important words found in verse 17. Here they are. When they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. But some doubted. It's a stunning admission by Matthew, who himself was one of the original 12 followers of Jesus, to tell us that some in their company still had their doubts. It's an omission that can't help but raise many questions for us, namely, who were the doubters? What exactly were their doubts? Why were they doubting? And when and how did their doubts finally get resolved? Matthew doesn't share the answer to these questions. Instead, he just leaves it there. The existence of doubt in the midst of the celebration of resurrection. In fact, if we look and listen carefully, all four gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, record doubts about the resurrection. Despite several encounters with the risen Christ over a period of 40 days, considerable uncertainty seems to have been present among the disciples as they came to terms with the reality of Jesus resurrected. One of the things you have to respect about the gospel accounts is the honest and straightforward way they tell the story of Jesus without massaging any tensions, without leaving out any details, or altering facts that might read as problematic or disconcerting. It's this kind of truthfulness that convinces me the gospel of Jesus Christ is not a cleverly devised myth, something the disciples made up, rather than it is an, an authentic historical account. And if you don't agree with me on this, if you still have your questions, that's fine. Because as Matthew assures us here, there is room for doubt, even among the disciples. Now, to be clear, the disciples exhibited the doubt exhibited by the first followers of Jesus, according to the original word in Greek used by Matthew to describe it, 
It's more about hesitation than outright unbelief. It has the connotation of uncertainty or a wavering in one's convictions. Still, with that clarification, how could those who were with Jesus, up close and personal, I mean, every step of the way, how could they have doubted him? I mean, after all, they had dined with Jesus on Easter evening and then eight days after that, before coming to this mountain. And yet, and yet, even though they could see him with their own eyes, some were still wavering, still uncertain, still unsure. Truth be told, this is nothing new. Before the resurrection, if we read through the Gospels, we notice that the, 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 the disciples are notorious for their struggle with belief. Repeatedly, those who first followed Jesus responded to his teachings, his miracles, even their own experience of his power. They respond with a mixture of confidence and yet uncertainty. And so now, likewise, as the disciples encounter the risen Christ, doubt still lingers in their hearts and minds, even as they stand in awe and wonder. Now, Matthew could have mentioned this little detail later, rather than to insert it in the middle of all the celebration, rather than putting it right before the giving of the Great Commission. But I think Matthew puts this little nugget here intentionally. For while he's testifying to the glory of the risen Christ, Matthew is at the same time assuring us that faith, believing in the resurrection, isn't easy. And most of us in these last 12 months have certainly discovered just how hard it can be to believe in resurrection when all that surrounds us is sickness and death. Many have struggled, many continue to wrestle with holding fast to belief and hope in the risen Christ Jesus in the midst of a broken, divided, and pain-filled world. I mean, faith is easy when life is good, when things are going our way, but true faith comes at a premium when life is hard, when things are not the way we planned for them to be, when anticipating and celebrating the best things about being alive have to be modified, postponed, or even canceled by no fault of our own, Faith is hard when we're struggling to make ends meet and care for those we love and yet find ourselves with little time to enjoy the fruit of our efforts. Faith is hard when we continually find ourselves at odds, in argument, maybe even indefinitely cut off from those we consider family and friends. True faith isn't easy when things are not the way they're supposed to be. True faith isn't easy when injustice is passively accepted even as equity is actively denied, when supremacy and privilege for the majority become the basis of marginalizing and persecuting the minority, when the championing of what is wrong eclipses what is doing right, what is right, doing what is necessary and right, then true faith isn't easy. It's actually hard to believe that love actually wins. The faith of many has been wavering in the aftermath of this last year. Many people are having their doubts about Jesus as they've witnessed the bulk of the church, the body of Christ, those who profess to follow Jesus being more animated and vocal in their defense of the exercise of their rights and their power than they are in compassionately and sacrificially advocating and serving those most in need. A lot of people around us, maybe we ourselves, have real questions and therefore honest doubts when it comes to believing in Jesus. How does one have faith in the resurrection of Christ when confronted by a church that is so afraid of dying to itself? And when the body of Christ looks more dead than alive, how can one not have doubts that Jesus is risen, risen indeed? 
But then again, maybe the wavering faith of the first disciples has less to do with Jesus rising from the dead and more to do with their ability to rise from the sting of death like he did. I'm not talking about the disciples doubting that when they physically died, they would rise from the grave and move beyond death into eternity. That's not what I'm speaking of. I'm talking about the disciples doubting that they could actually transcend, rise above the mistakes and brokenness of their past. I'm talking about the disciples doubting that they could truly rise above the limitations and liabilities of their present bad habits and current prejudices. I'm talking about the disciples doubting themselves, being uncertain that Jesus could really change or transform them. I mean, think about it fresh in the disciples' minds was the memory of their individual and collective denial of Jesus. Surely in this moment, they hadn't forgotten how they kept silent and remained absent when Jesus was arrested and falsely accused. The hearts of the disciples were still aching from their shared betrayal of Christ. The wound was still raw from the moment they broke faith with Jesus by running as far away from him as they possibly could, leaving him to carry his cross to die in agony and shame alone. And now, Jesus was calling them to follow him in living out of this new resurrection life. Jesus was leaving the sharing of the gospel, commissioning them, trusting them to represent him to the ends of the earth. Sometimes it can be easier to have faith that Jesus can resurrect us when we physically die than it is to believe Christ can redeem or reconcile can breathe new life into the dead parts of ourselves now. Maybe the lingering doubts, the wavering faith of the first disciples had to do with themselves. Whether any of them was even vaguely capable or competent to reflect Jesus to anyone, let alone to become ambassadors for Christ to all nations. And in this prolonged season of a global pandemic, a highly contested election and the increasing rise rather than fall of hostility and violence among neighbors due to politics, economics, race, and even health and safety standards, this has fostered more doubt than confidence, not just with the church, but for many within the church. I've had conversations over these last few months with Christians of all stripes who while they don't doubt who Jesus is, what Christ has done, they have started to waver. They've started to doubt themselves, or more pointedly, Christ's ability to work in and through them. As they've experienced an already divided church splinter into even more factions, as they've happened upon what fellow brothers and sisters in the faith have posted on social media or worse, said out loud in mixed company, as they've witnessed the acrimony and division of all this sickness and death, how it's thrown individuals into suicidal depression, how it's ripped communities of marriages and families and neighborhoods apart, how it's ultimately leading the next generation to come not towards, but away from the church and by extension away from Christ, Many Christians waver in their confidence, their effectiveness, their ability to model and teach what Jesus taught, love for God that is expressed by loving each other as we love ourselves. For them, their doubt increasingly revolves around themselves. Their hesitation, their uncertainty, their self-questioning in leading others to Jesus in making a tangible difference for the kingdom of God is about them. And if I'm being honest, I share many of these doubts. 
Again, not wavering about who Jesus is, but questioning if Christ is working in and through me. I struggle with whether I'm cut out for following Jesus. I question whether what I think about Jesus, what I believe about who Jesus is, is right. I waver in my confidence, in my call, in my ability to point and lead others to Jesus. My intention in sharing these doubts with you right now is not to fish for any sort of pity or encouragement. It's simply to be real and acknowledge the questions that are bouncing around inside of me even as I continue to put my faith in Jesus. I have my doubts, and you may have yours too. And that's okay, because we're in good company. We all have our doubts, including not just some, but all of the disciples. Did you notice I didn't say some of the disciples like it says here in verse 17? This is because, get ready for it, the word some here in verse 17, it's not actually there in the original language. It's not there in Greek, the language in which Matthew wrote this gospel account. The word some has been added by most English translations. In other words, what Matthew's gospel literally says is it wasn't just that some doubted, they all doubted. So despite how we as Christians often speak and act as if faith is simple and doubt is wrong, reading the gospels helps us to know we're not alone in our doubts. Even to the end, even at the point of resurrection, those who first followed Jesus wavered in their faith. They had their moments when they just weren't sure and were still uncertain about moving forward with Christ. And that means part of the good news of Easter is faith and doubt are not necessarily opposed to each other. This means the smallness of our faith and our own struggles to believe, no matter what they are, they don't threaten or disqualify us from receiving and sharing the resurrection life of Christ. Because here's one more shocker. Even though the closest followers of Jesus, even though people in which Christ has invested in three years waver from beginning to end, Jesus does not fault them for doubting. He does quite the opposite here, actually. Jesus includes them all in his commission to go out and make more disciples. Still, we might wonder, okay, but what are we to do with all of our doubts in the meantime? How do we live with them in a world that often prides itself on certainty, on absolutes, in the midst of a whole creation of universes upon universes that refuse to be painted as black and white? How do we navigate the gray areas of what we believe? Some might argue, the best way to deal with our doubts is to overcome them with evidence. But doubt is not always overcome by evidence. I mean, clearly, the doubt of the disciples was not overcome by evidence, was it? Even the evidence of their own senses. The evidence before them of seeing the risen Jesus with their own eyes, of eating and drinking with him, was not enough to convince them completely. The disciples still wavered. Evidence cannot always overcome our doubts because evidence can be denied. We can always explain away what we experience even when the evidence is solid and real. Now, others might suggest, well, the best way to deal with our doubts then is to work them through argument. They might argue that there are many logical and compelling reasons to believe that Jesus rose from the dead. You may have heard some of these reasons before, and I'm not going to rehash them right now. 
And the reason why I'm not going to rehash them is because doubt is not always overcome by our argument either. Good and strong as these arguments may be, reasons and arguments usually just lead to counter-arguments, especially if the one who is trying to convince us is being argumentative. Consider, consider what Matthew shares with us, how the authorities in Jerusalem, when they were informed by the soldiers guarding Jesus' tomb, when they were told of everything that had happened, they still published the story that Jesus' disciples had stolen his body. The force of reason, the truth of the argument, did not lead them to believe. It led them to lie. My friends, doubt is not always eliminated by reason. People are not generally argued out of their doubts and into faith. We need to remember that. They typically dig their heels in deeper in their resistance and uncertainty. Well, where does that leave us? So if we can't necessarily deal with our doubts with evidence or with argument, what is left for us to do? Well, Matthew's told us plainly. It's right here in front of us in the very same sentence that first caught us by surprise. Verse 17, Matthew writes, When they saw him, they worshipped him. The disciples worshipped Jesus even while they were doubting. Those who wavered in what they believed still fell down and yielded before Jesus in reverence. Well, hold on. I, wait a second. How can we possibly worship Jesus if we have any hesitation? How can that possibly make sense as the way to handle our doubt? The disciples still had questions. They did not have all the answers. The disciples continued to wrestle with uncertainty. But even in the midst of all their questions and their uncertainty, they realized the truth they had, the resurrection life they witnessed in Jesus, was greater than all of their doubts. Another way of expressing this is, if faith and doubt are not opposed to each other, then the disciples didn't allow their uncertainty to keep them from embracing all that Christ was offering to them. The best way to handle all of our doubts, our doubts about life, our doubts about ourselves, our doubts about God, are to bring them to Jesus. Not necessarily to let go of our questions and our uncertainty, but not to let them get in the way of following Christ. The best way to deal with all of our doubts is not to hold them back, but to give them to Jesus, to follow Christ and see what he can do, how he can still work despite all our wavering, despite our uncertainty. Again, Matthew is openly revealing to us that doubt is an integral part of faith, and that means the opposite of faith isn't doubt. The opposite of faith is certainty. When we're certain about something, we don't really need faith, do we? When we're absolutely and without question totally sure in our minds and in our hearts, then we don't need to trust anyone else. My friends, Jesus doesn't call us to be certain about him. Jesus calls us to have faith in him. Jesus doesn't tell us we can't have our doubts as we believe in him. Jesus tells us to follow him with whatever level of belief we have. In fact, Jesus says we only need a little bit of faith. A mustard seed will do. That's enough for him to work with. And by the way, according to Jesus, any faith we have, any belief in him, any conviction about what he's done, any confidence in what he can do in and through us, any faith we possess, according to Jesus, is a gift from God. So, if faith itself is a gift, 
then whatever belief we have is on Jesus to cultivate and grow in the midst of our doubts. We are capable of worshiping Jesus, even as we are wondering about Jesus at the same time. Our doubts do not necessarily prevent us from taking the next step of faith of Christ, with Christ. Because as we read the Gospels, and we notice Jesus frequently criticizing his disciples for their little faith, it's not that Jesus is rebuking them for not believing in him more. He's rebuking them for not bringing the faith and the doubt they have to him. He's rebuking them for not putting the responsibility for their belief and the working out of their uncertainty in his hands. The real issue is not whether or not we can have any doubts or uncertainty about Christ. No, the real issue is whether we are willing to submit our questions, our hesitancy, our wavering to Christ. The problem is not in our mind or our heart, it's in our will. Putting all our doubts in Jesus' hands means releasing control over all our uncertainties. Now, don't get me wrong. Questions born of uncertainty by themselves are not a problem. But sometimes we wield the questions we have as a way of actually avoiding the answers. By yielding all our questions before Christ, rather than hiding from Jesus in all our doubts, we open ourselves to the possibility that he will meet us in the hesitations born of our honest questions. Sometimes it's in the midst of our uncertainties that Jesus shows up most profoundly and most powerfully. It's doubt, not certainty, that makes us vulnerable to grace. But on the other hand, when we use our uncertainty to keep Jesus at arm's length, when we allow our hesitancy to keep us fixated only on ourselves, we tend to end up stuck in our doubts, running in circles and never moving forward. Fun fact, the only other place in the Bible where the word translated here as doubt, the only other place where it appears in, is in Matthew's account of Peter walking on the water. Do we remember that story? Peter had enough faith to get out of the boat and walk toward Jesus on the water, right? But then he wavered. He became fixated on his doubts about being able to follow Jesus. So Peter took his eyes off Jesus in the midst of his hesitancy, and so all he had left was his uncertainty, and thus he began to drown. My doubts consume me when I remain focused on myself. But when I look to Jesus with my mixture of faith and uncertainty, I find the grace to move forward in the midst of my doubts. The more I look to Jesus, my faith grows even as I have uncertainties. Our faith grows even in the midst of our uncertainties because the object of our faith, Jesus, becomes bigger than our doubts. My friends, Easter comes to us today as it did for the first disciples with a mixture of both worship and hesitation. Like those who first followed Jesus, we carry to the tombs of our lives the same jumble of doubt, fear, certainty, anxiety, hope, and joy that they brought to the resurrected Christ. Let us give thanks today that part of the good news of Easter is that there is room for doubt. There is room for our doubts because Jesus has no doubts about us. No doubts about what he can, about what he will do in and through us. Though we may be uncertain about the future, though we may waver in our confidence, that we can become all that Jesus calls us to be, that we can fulfill the great commission given to us, Jesus has no doubts. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, Jesus declares to us without hesitation. 
In our tendency to focus and evaluate ourselves solely on the basis of our own estimation of our strengths and weaknesses, or by comparing ourselves to the successes and failures of others, Jesus calls us to look to his ability and power. And surely I am with you, Jesus assures us, to the very end of the age. All that Christ calls us to is all about him. Working through us, through our faith and our doubt, every step of the way. Because trusting, not in the absence, but trusting in the face of our doubt, is what faith really means. Trusting, not in the absence, but in the face of our doubt, is what it means to follow Jesus. So as hard as it may be to believe, to comprehend, and at times, certainly after this last year to perceive, Christ is risen, risen indeed. And so full of faith and doubt, let us follow Jesus. Let us not shy away from our questions, but instead confess them as part of our worship of Christ. In the midst of the unknowing that is the reality of most of our lives, let us bow down to the power of divine love that is proven today stronger than death. Instead of refusing to move until we are certain, let us respond to Jesus' call in the midst of our hesitation, his call not to fixate on ourselves, but to recognize his presence, to embrace the power of his love in order to serve our neighbor and to bless all nations. And along the way, let us continue to leave room for doubt, for our doubts and the doubts of others, because despite our fear, our anger, our disappointment, our grief, even our uncertainty, if we bring it all to Jesus, if we keep our eyes on Christ, we can rise again. Because in the emptiness of his tomb is our assurance that with Jesus, failure is never final. Is our assurance that all the death-dealing, soul-crushing, hope-destroying places in our lives and in this world will be eclipsed. By the dawn of a new horizon, new possibilities and new dreams, born of a new everlasting life found in Christ alone. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Amen. If you would like more information about our church, please visit us online at gracehb.org. 